Support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Ashman Family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Ashman Family JCC empowers you to experience Jewish paths toward a life of joy, purpose, and meaning through innovative Jewish learning and wellness programs, community building, and initiatives to develop the next generation of Jewish leaders. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 361, Spiritual Abundance. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rofberg. And today we are continuing our series on spirituality, exploring the question of what it means to create a new spiritual community. Our guest today is Ariana Katz. She is the founding rabbi of Hinenu, the Baltimore Justice Stiebel. Before we get into that conversation, just want to say officially the registration for our next round of Unyeshiva classes has opened. These are going to be semester-long 12-week classes. We are super excited about them. Lex and I are teaching. Lex is teaching about Jewish discontinuity. I'm continuing to look at the Bible as Jewish mythology, now looking at the stories of Moses and the Israelites in the wilderness. We have a terrific class on Jewish languages from all over the world led by Sarah Benor, a professor of linguistics and a great former guest on Judaism Unbound, and also a class on plant-based Judaism with Sarah Eifler from Jewish Veg, another beloved guest on Judaism Unbound. And then we also have a class that is uh, going to be a lot closer to the subject matter of this series of spirituality, but it's really built around the idea of putting love at the center of religion. It's with Shefa Gold, one of the most important spiritual practitioners in the Jewish world today. I think it's fair to say that. And she is going to be our guest on Judaism Unbound next week. And I'm pretty sure that if you listen to next week's episode, you are going to want to sign up for that class. So you can check out any of those classes at judaismunbound.com slash classes, and you can register right there. We'll be so excited to learn with you. So let me tell you a little bit about the organization that our guest comes from today. It's called Hinenu, the Baltimore Justice Stiebel, which is an intentional spiritual community of Jews and loved ones who study, pray, organize, and care for one another. Hinenu celebrates diaspora Judaism through ritual, learning, song, and prayer. It's located in Baltimore, Maryland. Hinenu literally means, here we are in Hebrew, and what is a shtibel, you might ask? It's a Yiddish word that technically means little house, which has been typically used to describe a tiny synagogue, usually Orthodox, but Hinenu thinks of it as an intimate, cozy space, where prayer and study meet. Hinenu celebrates an evolving and dynamic Judaism, and it welcomes a diverse range of beliefs, identities, ages, and experiences. It rejoices in queer and trans identities, converts, multi-faith families, Jews of color, and members who are not Jewish. And it seeks to be fully accessible economically and in terms of disability justice. Hinenu is also committed to building a community that centers justice and liberation for all people, working inside and alongside movements for racial, economic, migrant, reproductive, gender, indigenous, disability, and environmental justice. And Hinenu, as a Jewish community, feels a particular responsibility toward justice in Israel-Palestine and works toward Palestinian equality, freedom, and dignity. Our guest today, Ariana Katz, is the founding rabbi of Hinenu. Before the founding of Hinenu, she served congregations in Philadelphia and has worked at Trua, the Rabbinic Call for Human Rights, Avodah, the Jewish Service Corps, and as a chaplain at Planned Parenthood. 
Ariana Katz has also been our colleague in the Jewish podcast world, having created and hosted Kaddish, a podcast about death and identity. She has collaborated on dynamic Jewish ritual projects at the intersection of justice and Judaism, such as Soul Candles for the Days of Awe, Kits, and Workshops, and the Years of Radical Dreaming Jewish Calendar. Ariana Katz has rabbinical ordination from the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College. So, Ariana Katz, welcome to Judaism Unbound. It's so great to have you. I'm so happy to be here. When I was looking at the Hinenu website, there's it, it actually describes Hinenu in a few different ways on different pages. Maybe you want to look at that. No, but um, <laughs> one of the pages talked about it as an intentional spiritual community. And that really grabbed my attention because we're in this series on spirituality. And just as a starting point, I was wondering whether an intentional spiritual community means something spiritual and what does that mean like how would you define spirituality and i guess spiritual community in that and or is it just kind of a cooler way to say synagogue i think the answer is yes to both to be honest with you so when we were in our our early days of forming as a community one of our founding members on the way out the door was like this isn't your buddy's synagogue And I looked at them and I was like, you can be more wrong because one, we should be so lucky to be Bubby Synagogue. (laughs) And two, she really knows what she's doing. And three, we're doing the same project at Hinenu that Jewish communities, synagogues around the world are doing. We just happen to skew younger and politically to the left. But the the animating force, love of Torah, love of Jewish people, love of world and wanting to gather together in support of those three things that um, I think that's as traditional of a model as you can get. So the first answer is, yeah, it's just a interesting way to try to talk about what we're doing. I really chafe at the idea that we're creating something brand new because I don't think new is better. And I also, uh, I don't think we're smarter than our ancestors. So I don't want to lead from a place of hubris and I don't want us to gather as a congregation from a place of defining what we're not or what we think we're better than. So the reason I like that language is because there is a huge portion of our congregation, at least the ones who have told me, who don't have a personal relationship with the divine, don't believe in God, aren't invested in God as a part of their their Jewish practice, and are still spiritual. My teacher, Reverend Mary Martha Teal, um, is doing incredible work around the spiritual but not religious population and how to offer pastoral care for SBNRs. Uh, Being able to talk about spirituality as a component for some of religion, but also separate separate from religion, allows more people to find place and allows us to use more pathways in to talk about things that feel bigger than us. I don't care what you call it. I happen to have a second grade like style personal relationship with a divine that I can't believe they let me graduate from IRC with. (laughs) IRC is the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College where I graduated from. Uh, I don't actually care what's bringing someone to shul. And I think talking about ourselves as an intentional spiritual community, my hope is that it communicates that we are invested in these big questions of ethics and and how we move through the world without necessitating one particular correct answer. When I read or hear 
intentional spiritual community, I am forced to think about, or maybe not forced, I, I am encouraged to think about, okay, so what are you in contrast to? What and, and that's in a few ways. So you could imagine an unintentional yeah. spiritual community. Then next you can imagine the intentional unspiritual community. Yeah. And the the last would be the intentional and spiritual individual or like non-community, like both intentional and spiritual, but it's one person. It's not a community. So I'm uh -huh. curious if you can get at like those three pieces, because I see people use the language of intentional community sometimes. I see people say spiritual community, but you've used both. And so it allows us to really ask, like, is there a yeah. difference between the two? What's intentionality that isn't spiritual? What's spirituality that is less intentional? Gorgeous. I love this question. And also, I'm so glad that we are, as a congregation, in the midst of our rebrand, where we're going to read every word on our website, knowing that folks are engaging with what we put out there in the world so carefully. Ooh, hello. Okay. So the angle that feels easiest is talking about when the community is intentional, but the spirituality is missing. So when I think about that, I think about the feeling of obligation, not in the good way. So I love feeling obligated. I think that's one of the most Jewish things about me. It makes me feel really good in my relationships and in my practice, especially when it's not coming from a place of guilt, but desire to be in a covenanted relationship. And when I think about the ways that some of our our members or larger systems in the Jewish community work, it's from the negative sense of obligation, from a sense of guilt or inherited trauma. If I don't do this thing, then the big bad is going to come or obligation to family, but carrying out Jewish practice in a way that doesn't actually feel personally fulfilling. So you can be an intentional community because you're like, we're trying to do this Jewish thing together without it actually being fulfilling or connecting to the divine or connecting to a higher pursuit of, of values and culture and ethics. And um, we were put in this world to experience pleasure and make good art and eat delicious food and feel good in our bodies as often as we're able. And I think often sometimes the, the negative obligation, that guilt that comes with, oh, I have to do XYZ Jewish thing, takes away from the spirituality of it. So in terms of intentional spiritual practice that's divorced from community, we lose an entire valence of, of practice. So having our prayers witness, being able to read from the Torah, being able to um, say Kaddish, other prayers that require a minion, a quorum, but also we lose the opportunity to offer one another care. And we lose the opportunity even more so to butt up against each other and break things and have to fix them together. And intentional spirituality saying, I want to live my days in and out with a connection to the source, a connection to the earth, a connection to my past is a beautiful thing. But the opportunity to do so in community opens up a whole other set of colors, a whole other set of tools. And then the last category is spiritual community that is not intentional. I mean, you know, sometimes I think this is Hininu's greatest strength and our greatest challenge is, woo, there's a lot of kavanah running around. There's a lot of intentionality. There's a lot of just 
processing and reflecting. And 50% of our membership is LGBTQ. And so you have a bunch of lefties and queers sitting around making community. It's going to be very thoughtful. And that's a gift because all of us, regardless of the identities that we hold, have experienced being treated less than carefully by institutions. And so with that history that we all, every single person carries, building an institution that says we represent Judaism to people and saying we want to do so carefully and we want to do so with a lot of heart because what we're doing has an impact on our lives and on the lives of people we haven't met yet or don't know are listening, that intention is incredibly important. You know, I we, we talk a lot of smack. We make fun of each other with love about, you know, all of the processing and all of the, the time we take to make decisions. We do meet in a Quaker meeting house, so perhaps it rubbed off on us. But <laughs> I think that there is embedded in it just a real piece of heart and emotion of, wow, it's so easy for the world to be callous with each other and building something with intention inherently it slows it down. Like I felt my own body slow down as I started talking about this and, and just like goosebumps thinking about so many who have shared stories about what it's felt like to be discarded or ignored or forgotten and worse in Jewish institutions. And so the, in, the intentionality of course is about blowing open history as we have received it and realizing there's so much more to uncover, like so many guests on the show talk about. But for me, the intentionality around building Jewish community comes in thinking about what role do institutions play in the lives of the people that um, that we're trying to serve. And that itself is a spiritual practice. So it's interesting, and I hear the ways in which you don't want to make comparisons between Hinenu and various synagogues, and let, let's not do that. I want to understand Hinenu on its own terms, although as I think about it, what's interesting, what's striking me is that when you read an organization that describes itself as a justice shtiebel, shtiebel we can, I'd love to hear how you describe shtiebel, but, um, sure, but you know, sure, essentially sure, sure. if you would hear an organization say we're a justice synagogue, you might say, oh, that's a newfangled young, young people type of thing. And then it occurs to me that the synagogue that I am a member of it's called Rodfei Tzedek, which means pursuers <laughs> of justice. And so right. you're 100% right about, like, it is our Bubby's synagogue. But the synagogue that, that Rodfei Tzedek is over 100 years old. In any event, I want to understand, you have said things like, we have over 50% of our community that are queer, that we're a community built around justice that it is a synagogue, an organization that is maybe a little different from another synagogue because it's on the left. Can you talk about what does it mean to have an organization like this with those and, and maybe other features you'll, you'll talk about? I, I understand that there's a lot of meetings, there's a lot of process, but what is that all pointing towards? What, what happens? I think it goes in two directions. I think that there is the the internal understanding of justice, justice at home and justice in the streets. And I talk about this when I do weddings, that the Jewish investment in a wedding is like, yeah, yeah, what's happening between the couple or the people getting married is great, but there's a larger global universal implication that there is something happening. And the Sheva Bracha of the seven wedding blessings model that, right? Because it it starts global and it's not until blessing number six of seven that we're like, oh yeah, there's a, there's a couple <laughs> getting married under this chuppah. 
So I think about justice at home and justice in the streets. Of course, we know that real life blends the two. But I think about the the interpersonal work, the healing work that can happen in Jewish community. I, being a student at RRC, was not prepared to leave the gay Hogwarts in the woods, which is how I describe RRC, um, <laughs> and, and find myself here in Baltimore, which is a really politically conservative town for Jews. The amount of LGBTQ uh, religious trauma that exists um, in town and also in the world, I was just ignorant to it, which like, thank God, everyone should be. But so the, the, just the act of being queer affirming of having our, our religious school children like walk the runway to like cheer them on in their Purim costumes because many of them have seen drag race, um, or to have a <laughs> queer kids hangout club as a part of our religious school curriculum. For some of our members to see a woman rabbi, um, a fat woman rabbi at the front of the room and see themselves or someone they love reflected back at them. As well as, as I've mentioned before, a real desire to continue thinking about how do we, how do we learn about harm and repair and practice it amongst ourselves? How do we affirm? And this is looping back. So good luck to you, Lex, as you edit. But how do we, <laughs> how do we affirm the ways that we build our families? I would say the majority of the partnered couples at Hinenu are multi-faith families. And from the very beginning, non-Jews have been full members, regardless of whether or not they're attached to a Jewish family, as long as they're invested in our Jewish communal mission. And we have one beloved member who's a Catholic deacon who has been teaching Torah, Hebrew Bible for his whole career. And he said, Judaism isn't a live tradition, and I don't want to teach it like it's something historical or outdated. And he moves the most furniture. So... Shout out to you, Joe. So the the presence of inclusion, it feels like such a gross word, right? Someone at Yom Kippur once said that um, we're not including anyone. People who are usually on the fringes at Shul are the ones driving our congregation. Jews of color are leading Shabbat services, are calling out and calling in as opposed to standing on the sidelines. That are people who are who are leading our discussion about disability, justice, and inclusion are disabled. We're naming who is present in the room and trying to think about who's missing. That's the stuff that's happening at home. That shouldn't be unique. <laughs> I don't want that to be interesting. Like, I want this to be a boring thing that people fast forward through. And the sadness is that I have to keep remembering that that's not the case. There are still a lot of like, non-Jewish moms who run drop-off for religious school and are the ones ensuring that their kids are actually getting a religious school education but can't come up on the bima for an aliyah, for an honor, when their kids are become B'nai Mitzvah. And at Hinenu, it just was never, never a second thought. So there's the internal affirmation in that work. And then there's also the internal political education. Israel-Palestine is a, a huge part of why people wanted a congregation like ours at all. Many members have been alienated from Judaism and Jewish community because of their Palestine solidarity politics and are looking for a place to engage with other Jews from a place in which it is not negotiable, um, the basic humanity of Palestinians, just because Jews are having the conversation. And also the healing that comes with being a progressive Jew, trying to own our stuff, 
our diversity of stuff, find our place and center the most impacted, which are Palestinians living under under the occupation and surviving the ongoing Nakba. So the work of finding ourselves and each other in our tradition, doing that internal communal healing work is what it means to be justice driven at home. Yeah. We've had a number of moments on this podcast where we've talked about the word inclusion, and I love that you could just start from the place of, we all know it's kind of an icky word. That's still not clear to everyone, that it it implies that, yeah, you're including people, but like it's sort of this act of generosity where you are not part of group X and you are including group X as opposed to like actively having them be the ones that include anybody else. Um so I'm grateful to you for re-upping that point. But what's <laughs> clear with your congregation is like 50% or more of the place is queer, is progressive, is in interfaith relationships. Like nobody's going to feel unsure if they're welcome when most of the room looks like them. That's or mm. maybe not nobody. It's it's less likely. But um, I, I wanted to sit with a moment that you said really quickly that I actually think is very profound, which is you said in the context of we have lots of meetings, we have lots of intentionality, that... You meet in the Quaker meeting house, and maybe that rubs off on us. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that was, you know, in jest to some extent, but I'm curious about the ways in which that might be deeply true. And I'm not so much talking about like Quakers specifically, but I do think Quakers are a few things. One, historically deeply embedded in the left and in justice struggles in this country. That is, mm-hmm. I don't want to say it's true of all Quakers, but it is often true of Quaker communities. Mm-hmm. And... It's a not Jewish building, right? Like it, it, if you meet in a Quaker meeting house, yeah. that's one of those situations where like for the for the spouses of Jews that are going with their families and they themselves aren't Jewish, there might be a, a little less of a barrier if it's like, oh, this I'm going to a Quaker meeting house. I've been to a Quaker meeting house or I've been to like that feels comfortable if they're somebody who has mm. experienced that. Anyway, what it points to is that you're deeply connected right down to the building you meet in with mm other communities. And so I'm curious to hear what it looks like for you to be in partnership with other, whether it's religious communities or just activist communities in Baltimore and beyond. What does that look like? We continually have an issue with acoustics. And I love it so much (laughs) because Homewood Friends was built, I think, in the 1600s, created for a spiritual practice that is inherently pretty quiet. But when we get in there... Girl, it's loud and (laughs) it bounces off the walls because the building was not built for loud Jews nigooning our faces (laughs) off. And that delights me Um, for people from a lot of different angles, being able to enter into a, a space without heavy religious iconography is, yeah, is a lower barrier to entry. If you're used to walking into a church and feeling bad about yourself or a synagogue and feeling unwelcome, it lowers one of the many things that you have to think about. There's also the Baptist church that gathers there, two meditation groups, an evangelical Bible study, the friends and us. Like there's a lot happening in that space. And that's how I think that's that's the future of buildings where religious people gather. So, you know, we are um, going into our fifth year as a congregation, and we formed in part because the majority of our membership was already involved in civic work and organizing work. 
And so for a lot of folks, they needed a place where they could recharge because they were already out in the world organizing. And I think it's a really interesting question that I would love to talk to anyone who wants to about what is the usefulness of synagogues in organizing work? Because we're still figuring it out. Even though justice is in our name, what is the what is the unique contribution that a synagogue can bring? Is it mobilizing bodies? Is it mobilizing dollars? Is it um, showing up at community meetings in support of um, particular issues? Or is it interfaith work? We're taking bites out of all of that. I don't have a theory of change yet, which is vulnerable to admit because of our name, which was the placeholder name on the Google Doc that I was using <laughs> when I was trying to convince people to have coffee dates with me. That's where the name came from. And so we are involved in various campaigns. Our members recently got trained and we are part of the clinic escorting at the local Planned Parenthood. We're supporting local work around Palestinian solidarity. We're continuing to try to find our feet in the interfaith organizing happening. And the the way that we engage with the city is often short term. And I wonder, like, maybe is that the right way to do it? How do we build long-term coalition work, especially in a fractured city? I'm learning so much from my my colleagues who have been doing this in town for longer. Caring for the, the spirits of people who are engaged in legislative work, who are engaged in neighborhood organizing, that feels much more straightforward. But how to ethically and honestly show up for organizing as a large group of people it's not as clear to me. And it feels really vulnerable to name publicly. We're still finding our feet. I don't like that. I wish I had a sexier answer. I really like that approach, that answer, because it feels like what you're describing is something organic. It feels mm -hmm. to me like if our Jewish institutions came about organically, we wouldn't need to have the pressure to have a theory of change right away necessarily, maybe not ever, because the theory of change would be implicit. It would grow out of the people. It, there would, it would be sustained on its own by the people for whom it was providing what they needed, et cetera. So I would love to pursue mm. that even a little more deeply and think about, you know, when you were describing how these were people that are already engaged in justice work, and they want to have a place to recharge, a place to do their spiritual work. Mm -hmm. And it feels like there's a lot of pressure, a lot of expectation today that a synagogue ought to be this kind of generic Jewish gathering place where everybody can come mm -hmm. and everybody should feel comfortable. And therefore, rabbis struggle a lot to give the synagogue a sense of meaning or maybe, like you say, a theory of change because... You can't really stand for that much without alienating a big chunk of your constituency. And if your goal is not to alienate anyone, then you kind of have to be parv. And I'm wondering what the contrast looks like when you are a synagogue or mm -hmm. a synagogue-like organization created by and for a particular slice of the community. And what, what happens again, like, I'm sort of curious, like not so much about the theory of change, but about the reality that's happened over the last five years, when you create a, a synagogue like that, what happens? You should make a podcast. That's great. <laughs> um, there's so much in, in that question. 
Yeah, I think that there's something, there's like a core truth in, in your reflection that because our tradition is as old and wide and deep as it is, not that you can, Judaism can say anything you want, but that there are a lot of different footholds and ways of finding ourselves in our tradition. Every community serves a specific group of people, whether or not they admit it. It serves a group of people with explicit political values based on what the congregation does or doesn't sponsor, centers certain talents and skills, centers certain family structures and um, classes. Depending on how financially accessible your synagogue is, it's going to tell you whether or not you belong there and whether or not you have to furnish them with your W-2. Every congregation serves a specific subsection of our Jewish community. It's just a question about how honest we are. The hope that the people that we most want to serve see themselves reflected in the congregation. I mean, I hope so, but there's certainly places we're failing. And the majority of our congregation is white. Even if we are continually talking about anti-racism, centering the leadership of Jews of color, a mostly white organization is going to be pretty alienating to want to show up in Shabbos in and Shabbos out if you're a family of color, right? So every community has a culture, whether or not it owns it. And what we're doing at Hinenu is just we're in the process of culture formation. I often get this question around Israel. And this question is like, I don't believe X, Y, Z, or I can't, you know, I don't align myself with X, Y, Z opinion. Can I still come to the shul? I was like, sure, you can come to the shul, but you have to understand that Palestinian solidarity was unanimously voted into our values when we brought them together in our first year of creation. So if you can get down with that, come to shul. Because there are so many communities that the members of our congregation who carry various marginalized identities have to sort of um, swallow in order to participate in dominant culture. All this is just to say that every community has um, an explicit and implicit culture and the opportunity to create one for Hinenu is a unique blessing that I get to be a part of. Um, gathering the fringes, the fringes, gathering the, the lentil lovers, the lefty progressives who are already engaged in healing work and injustice work. That is one section of the, the Jewish world that we get to serve. But again, we're doing what every other synagogue is doing. I think I'm just a part of a larger normalization campaign of saying that we are doing something just as Jewish as a synagogue down the street. And that itself, I think, is challenging and healing within the lives of our, our members and in the larger biome of the Baltimore Jewish community. The Federation here, the Associated, keeps wondering why there are so many young Jews involved in our synagogue. And I think that's because folks see themselves reflected, honored, see that there's a sense of joy here. But we are doing something just as legitimate as the mainstream congregations. And I feel proud that we get to be in the same ecosystem. I really think that this question about, you know, synagogues being for a subset of the Jewish community versus just trying to be a little bit for everyone. Like, I, I, like to me, that's mm-hmm. kind of what this boils down to. It's a question of like specialization versus, I mean, what's the opposite word of specialization? I, I don't have like non-pejorative ways of putting it because my bias is in favor mm-hmm. of specialized communities. Yeah. But 
what you said about how existing synagogues, and it's not just synagogue, you know, JCCs, all sorts of organizations who think of themselves as basically just, we're a place that Jews gather across difference. I think a lot of places think of themselves that way. But I think if they were to yeah. actually do the exercise of like, which kinds of Jews are coming here? If we're in a community with multiple synagogues that sort of look similar from the outside, let's, I mean, I grew up in Milwaukee, there's multiple reform synagogues. I actually think that, and, and they're within like a very small geographic area, all suburban. There, there's historical dynamics there, there's white flight, there's all, all the mm-hmm. stuff that's true in a lot of places. But like if each of those three reform communities were to look at themselves and really deeply ask, like, when we look at the people who shop around the synagogues and they choose us, what is, like, what do those people share? I actually think there would be answers to that. And those answers would not be, oh, we're the reform synagogue that's closest to their house. For some people, that might be the answer, by the way. And I, I think that if there are any communities for whom the main factor that makes them what they are is that they are a bunch of people that live in a geographic location, I would ask them to maybe shoot for something deeper. And by the way, I'm not I'm not dismissing geographic location. Like I want neighbors to know each other. I actually think there's something beautiful about that. But if that's the thing, like all of a sudden that points to me like, wow, we should really be in partnership with our neighborhood association. We should really be, you know, doing stuff house to house if we all live close to each other. If we don't, and we're a set of people that live all around a metropolitan area, but we're all drawn to strong Torah studies. I don't know, whatever it is, that's something about your community that matters. But I think because we've just operated in this world for so long where the types of synagogues are conservative, reform, reconstructionist, orthodox, I don't think those terms mean a whole lot to a typical person setting foot in them week by week or or more likely a few times a year by a few times a year. So I'm kind of curious to dwell in that. I mean... I mean, you didn't say a should statement. I'm saying a should statement, and maybe you wouldn't, but my should statement is I believe that the Jewish community should proactively seek to have institutions that are not just, you know, we're a place that gathers Jews across difference, and we don't define ourselves with reaching that specific a group of Jews. I believe it would be better if we thought in an ecological sense, this institution is filling this ecological niche in the ecosystem. This one's filling a different one. This one's like grass. This one's like plankton. This one's, I mean, I'm being overly ridiculous with the analogy, but institutions fill collective needs when every single one of them is trying to be for everyone, but not in a deep way. I feel like we're not achieving much. So I guess my question is, is that part of the ethos? Is there an implicit claim here beyond just we want to be for this specific set of queer folks, lefties, Palestine solidarity, like folks who have been marginalized in other Jewish spaces. Is there an implicit claim here that's beyond that, that synagogues should stand for stuff? Yeah. Synagogues should stand for stuff. And also we shouldn't be in a war for souls. When I moved to Baltimore, it became really clear to me, it's vulnerable to have someone come in and say, I'm going to serve a population that you think you serve, but is saying that they're underserved. You can be a member of Hinenu and another synagogue, as many other synagogues as you want. Your butt in the pew every week is not required to prove that you care about what we're doing and that we care about each other. And I think sometimes this idea that it, you pick your community and like that's your that's your shoal, you go down with it or ascend with it, but I guess um, <laughs> that 
there's this inherent idea that like we have to get a certain number of people and we're battling to to win instead of saying like oh my god yeah they have a they have this incredible budget and brilliant leader who always brings in the best guest teachers and who drops really fire torah and that community figured out a theory of change you know whether or not dan and i think it's possible and so they're working on a really cool campaign so i'm going to hang out with them and they you know this other shul really has beautiful harmonies that rise from the congregation i think that there is a sense of collaboration that has been lost by the by like jewish nonprofits and grantors and needing to be dependent on outside money and also a sense of of ego of if we can't be everything to our people then we're nothing instead of being a little more comfortable with like a little bit of like a poly participatory jewish model that just says more is more do i want people to be active members of hinenu and support us with their their joy and their their time and their treasure of course do i want to be people's home base yes and i'm so glad that we are but the competitiveness gets in the way and this is usually something i say off the panel i'm not totally invested in pluralism i know that that's like a that's a really big value for a lot of people who i respect but I had to beg to be allowed to put on tefillin in my my Jewish day school experience because it was conservative, but not that egal, apparently. And when I was a, a younger person, I had to daven in a trichitza, which is where there's the men's section, the women's section, and then the everybody section in the middle um, for folks who want gender segregated davening. And that doesn't feel good to me. And I affirm that people need, people deserve to feel reflected in the spaces they're in. I know that discomfort is a spiritual modality that works for folks. I'm a bit of a hedonist, and I also think there's enough suffering in the world that I don't learn through suffering. We can be in relationship with people who are different than us without having to compromise our, our spiritual practices. I know pluralism works when everyone's a little uncomfortable, but like, what if everyone got to be comfortable and then we could have lunch? And so I think <laughs> that that ties into what we're doing at Hinenu. Like, you know, if someone listens to this, this episode and they're like, oh, cool, like radical queer lefty show in Baltimore going to visit next Shabbat. Oh my God, you're so welcome. Come on down. But I also want people to know that you don't have to hold those identities to want to be a part of a community where those identities are lifted up. I'm trying to figure out how can I put myself in more situations where I'm not in the dominant set of identities, where my white womanhood is not most comfortable. And, and so I invite anyone who's interested to know that the community is centering people. We're gathering our tzitzit. We're gathering the corners of our, of our talitot to the, to the center. But that doesn't mean we don't, we welcome anyone who wants to be a part of that. Um, there's this great t-shirt that says I'm not for everybody. And I think I had to really internalize that, that it's okay to not be for everybody. Not everyone wants a Spice Girls Kavanaugh before the Barhu. I get that. I want that. It's available to you. I did it once and I get so much smack for it, but it came deep from my spirit. And, you know, like that doesn't work for everyone. And that's great. And like hire a different rabbi, go to a different shul, you know, that's fine. Um, there's just honesty in that. People deserve to know what they're going to get. 
I mean, there's something inherent in what you're talking about that I think is worth naming, and you alluded to it earlier, but it basically, I think some of this resistance comes from a fundamental belief among involved Jews that Judaism is actually not that great, and that I can't imagine that too many more people than the ones that are currently involved are going to get involved. And so if your new synagogue comes to town and is succeeding, that probably means that you've taken away people from the other synagogues and you've kind of consolidated them into this new synagogue, as opposed to the possibility that there's these enormous numbers of potential joiners of Jewish institutions, whether they may or may not currently be Jewish, and that if there was an exciting, dynamic, new, or maybe not all of those things, but just niche, just oriented to center a certain type of person like you're talking about, that a whole bunch of different people would come. And I think that people fundamentally don't believe that's possible. And I wonder what the work is to shift that mindset, because I feel like there's spiritual work. People have to come into a new understanding of what Judaism could be such that it would actually like fulfill their spirit in, in some way. And I think that if people had that experience, they would have a lot more faith, to use another word that I don't use all that often, but they would have a lot more faith that something really powerful is possible. And then they would be excited for all of these initiatives, even if they might in some way be competitive, right? Even if they were competitive, they would be excited about them because they would know that maybe this organization is going to do the thing that we haven't been able to do. And by the way, as a parent of children who are starting to be old enough to go out into the world and do things on their own, I'm feeling this in a powerful way because I start to see the ways in which my children are better than me in all kinds of ways, are more skillful than me and are better people than me in various ways. And I don't, my mindset isn't to hold them back and to say, "Uh oh, if they succeed, then that'll reflect badly on me. My sense when that's happening is like, maybe they'll be able to do the things that I wasn't able to do. And I just, it frustrates me that that's not the overall mindset. And I understand the economics of it, but I think it's about more than economics. I think it's about some sense that I haven't had this experience of a powerful Judaism. You've unlocked the Daily Double. (laughs) Ding, ding, ding. Abundance, right? This is like the buzzwords that you have to say in conversations like this. Being able to approach Jewish communal life from a place of abundance the idea that there is more to uncover, there there are more people, there is more inspiration, there is more generosity. I think that's really important. I mean, yeah, sometimes it's worth just pausing. And I'm curious if your your listeners, how uncomfortable they'll feel with this. Um, I really love Jewish people. I really love Jewish people. And I love Judaism. And I'm so grateful that I get to be a Jew. And why is that a nervous making thing? Why is it a little scratchy for some people to hear, I love being Jewish? Now, that's a little bit because Jews with leanings towards fascism will use that to say, you know, some chauvinistic 
translation of what it means to be a light to the nations that like it's dangerous. But sitting from where I'm sitting, we got to say it more often. I love Judaism. I love Jews. I want Jews to flourish. I want to learn more Torah from more people, whether or not they're Jewish. And that perspective of not saying, well, why would you ever want to spend time in Jewish community? Like you must secretly hate it, right? I think that suspicion really undergirds things. You know, there's this whole other piece about Jews by choice who are, who are really centered in our, in our congregation. My partner uh, is a Jew by choice and very aggressive about talking about their experience at mikvah and the ways in which people are welcomed at the beginning and middle of their, um, their conversion journeys at Hineinu is something of which I'm really proud of. And that question that I think too many folks who are choosing Judaism get from born Jews of like, well, why would, why would you want to be Jewish? It is incredibly alienating, but it comes from this place of self-loathing that you're naming of this sucks. You're going to run whatever the, you know, whatever the stories are. I love nothing more than getting to work with folks who are at that part of their Jewish journey where they're just like, like taking every book off the library bookshelf about Judaism because you're just so freaking excited about it. Like that passion, that new relationship energy with Judaism uh, is such a gift. So I think a part of what makes it an intentional spiritual community, if we can bring it around again on the guitar, is like a desire to be here and be doing this project and believing that Judaism is a resource that can give our lives meaning and that's worthy of our time. So one thing I thought I was for sure going to ask about that I didn't yet is the name Hinenu, which I won't define. I won't translate. I'm going to let you do that. But um, I did want, before we close, to give you a chance to mention what that name is hinting at or why you chose it. And um, I also wanted to just name, like, we're in a unit on spirituality, and this conversation has not just been about spiritual practice or spirituality in, like, a direct sense. We've talked about organizational ecosystems. We've talked about abundance. We've talked about a lot of things. But I'm curious, how does this tie to a sense of spiritual practice? But mostly, just as we close, what would you like to leave our listeners with as they conclude this episode and go on to whatever's next. So our, our Torah cover was made by Annie Summer Kaufman, a former Baltimore resident. And it's from Breshit, from the first chapter of Genesis, and the presence of God or the, the breath of God, the Ruach of God hovered over the face of the waters. The idea of stillness and presence, our name Hinenu means here we are, just showing up and um, making a, a stake for uh, a stake in the ground, dropping an anchor, if you'll follow the metaphor, that this Judaism that we practice, that we are weaving is real and legitimate and matters to this biome. I think that that is one of the things that we are called into doing. How do our spiritual lives, how do our individual relationships with sacredness nourish the work of showing upfulness in our families and in our neighborhoods and in our city? And how does the work of organizing become itself a spiritual practice? And most of all, how do we do that from a place of humility? What's already being done? 
what's happened before in both our political traditions and in our spiritual traditions. Right, Our congregation has grown so significantly uh, during the pandemic because people are looking for places to make meaning because the war machine is not ending <laughs> and the death-dealing policies of our governments are not ending and the apologetics coming out of our Jewish community for collusion with whiteness and the occupation of Palestine. These things are not ending and we're looking for places where we can integrate a sense of meaning making and connection to the divine or to wisdom to make sense of it. Thank you so much, Ariana, for joining us. This has been a fantastic conversation. It was such a joy to, to chat with you all. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks so much to all of you out there for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this conversation and we hope that you'll tune in again with us in the future, especially as we continue on this spiritual journey that is our spirituality unit of podcast episodes. We've got a bunch more coming your way, continuing on next week and beyond. So definitely listen into those. As we close out, we want to, of course, encourage you to check out our new Yeshiva courses that will be beginning in February in just a few weeks. You can head to judaismunbound.com slash classes to learn more. We're really, really, really excited about the folks who will be teaching, which include Dan and I each teaching a class, and also the wonderful Sarah Budenbenor, Sarah Eifler, two Sarahs, both wonderful, and Shefa Gold. So check out the classes that we're offering. We hope that you will enroll in one or two or five. Always, always love to have you. So with that, we will close things out with this episode. And uh, as we do so, we'll encourage you, as always, to be in touch with us. We love hearing your questions, your thoughts, your comments, your concerns, your everything. All of those are welcome. And here are the ways you can be in touch. First, there's our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages. All of those are at Judaism Unbound for our handles. Second, you can go to our website, JudaismUnbound.com, where you can find show notes for this episode and all of our other episodes and lots of other things. And, of course, you can email us at dan at judaismunbound.com and or lex at judaismunbound.com. The last request we like to make is that we deeply appreciate any amount of financial donation that you're able to send our way. And you can do that on either a monthly recurring basis or just as a one-time gift via judaismunbound.com slash donate. So thank you so much for listening. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound. <laughs>